Well, the origin of the phrase sea change comes from William Shakespeare's last play, The Tempest. And when we use this phrase, we often mean some sort of subtle turn is happening in life, in business life, in community life, in family life, in church culture, or in the culture at large. The waves are building. The waters are warming. The tides are shifting. The winds of chains are blowing. And we see that our world is moving somehow in a slightly different direction. There's been some sort of sea change, and we need to acknowledge it as a people before we move forward. And this is somewhat consistent with Shakespeare's original turn of phrase, but not nearly as strong. He uses it in the midst of a stanza known as Full Fathom Five, where the nymph Ariel is singing about Ferdinand and singing to Ferdinand about his father's death. It goes like this Full Fathom Five, thy father lies, of his bones are coral made, those are pearls that were his eyes, nothing of him that doth fade. But doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. So there's nothing soft about this oceanic alteration. No, instead it's about the transformation of Ferdinand's body that slowly occurred after his total submersion into the calm and chaos of the sea. The sea took him, changed him. And over time, the sea became a part of him. And now his bones are coral. His eyes are pearls. And his essence has become something rich and strange. And this watery transformation of Ferdinand's body may still be a pretty good metaphor for the increasingly stark sea change that's happening within the body of Christ in America right now. It will likely be many years before we fully understand all of the ways that this pandemic has impacted us since March of 2020, but we don't need years to understand that our environment has undergone a drastic evolution over this past generation. The COVID-19 pandemic has only further accelerated and amplified these changes, which are, of course, in the midst of changing us. New technology, media, politics, tragedy, challenge, innovation, and progress continue to pour into our lives. And as they do, they are altering everything. From the way we learn, to the way we relate to one another, to the way we gather, to the way we do business, and even to the way we experience, embrace, or reject our faith. And as a people of faith, that last issue is something that I think we ought to spend some time focusing on this morning. The challenge of living right now as a people of faith in the midst of this ongoing sea change. Not because change is bad. Change isn't always bad. Sometimes change is good and often change simply is. So no matter how we assess the nature of it though, we do need to assess it and reflect on it because this current sea change has prompted issues that we need to wrestle with as a people and issues 
that have made the invitation Psalm 78 is extending to us increasingly difficult to respond to. The psalmist writes, and I'll read it again, I will utter hidden things, things from old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from our descendants. We will tell the next generation of the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them. Even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget God's deeds, but would keep God's commands. And then goes on from there, the psalmist does, to name just about every wondrous highlight from the story of God's people. And in context, we understand this is having, this has to do with a very specific purpose that has nothing to do actually with history itself. Now for its content, Psalm 78 is known as a historic psalm, but the purpose of the psalm is much less about the past than it is about the present and the future. Because the psalmist understands like we do that while knowing the events of our past ought to be foundational for our faith, there were and are plenty of people who know the biblical story who claim the biblical story as their own, and yet whose lives do not align with it. We may know people like that ourselves. And in light of this, the purpose of Psalm 78 is not to educate, but it is to motivate, to inspire God's people to fully live out and pass on their faith. The psalmist says it's not enough to remember our history with God. We need to live in the present with God so that our children will also choose to be present with God in their future. And this seems to be the intent of the psalmist. And his message is even more relevant for us today than it was for them so many years ago. Because today we're experiencing this very significant ongoing sea change and one notable aspect of the water we're swimming in now is that our children are increasingly choosing against a life of fully committed faith. In her book, Christianity After Religion, Diana Butler Bass talks about the rise of the nuns in our society. And the nuns are an ever-growing group that have chosen, as they have moved into the grooves of adulthood, to reject religious affiliation outright. They're, they're not atheists. Most of them would consider themselves spiritual, but not religious. But when they're asked on surveys to, to, to indicate what their particular chosen faith community is, they check the box, non-affiliated. No religious affiliation. They choose none. And this is quite different from what we've experienced in the past. It, it, it was never abnormal for children to grow up and, and leave their faith or their church for a time, 
But the trend was almost always over time for them to come back. Usually when they got married or, or had children, they would come back to faith and, and come back to church. And even when this began to happen later in life, it was because people were choosing to get married and have children later. But that trend is changing. The more recent trend has been for more and more young people to leave the church and never come back. And this happens for a variety of reasons. It may be because of an increasingly busy life. Other commitments outweigh faith commitments. It may be because of unsatisfactory answers to their questions. They simply cannot reconcile their struggles with their faith. It may be because someone from their church has wounded them in some way and church does not feel safe anymore. It may be that they perceive too much incongruence between what they understand about Jesus and the prejudices and politics and power struggles that they're seeing in their church. It may be any number of those things or any number of other things. But what we know is, for whatever reason, it's happening. Statistics are showing that about 50% of the students who graduate from our youth groups will leave church and never come back. Half of our children will grow up, leave the church, and never come back. Don't you think this is something we ought to pay attention to? We ought to. But not, I think, as some sort of doomsday scenario. The church is God's church. The church is not going away. God's people have survived and thrived for centuries. And the church is still doing good work in the world. It's just that sometimes the church or parts of the church or, or churches need to go through a time of refining before they can move forward. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on right now. So what I want us to do today is what I want us to, to think about is, is how we, each of us and all of us, might choose to participate in that refining so that we can do a better job of heeding the words of the psalmist and passing on our faith to the next generation. This is what Chap Clark and Karen Powell write about in their book, Sticky Faith. And you can see some quotes from that book on the front of your worship guide, actually. But what, what the book does is it addresses the phenomenon of slipping faith in our culture by focusing on the principles that still nurture a sticky faith. Why is it that some of our children grow up and sail away from the church and from faith never to return while others seem to have a faith that has a bit more Velcro. Here's one of the first things the, church, the, the book says. We ask graduating seniors to rank five groups of people in terms of the quality and quantity of spiritual support they receive from them. And those five groups were friends inside the youth group, friends outside of the youth group, youth leaders at their church, parents, and other adults in their congregation. And which group do you think they ranked as number one in terms of the spiritual influence in their life? Parents. The research shows 
that there is a significant relationship between parental support and sticky faith. Now, without question, parental support is not the only support necessary to seriously strengthen a child's faith. In fact, beyond peers, the book says that the most significant influence in a child's life is other adults in their congregation who have been loving to them. This is the, one of the reasons why our youth workers and our children's workers are so significant. That's why we need you. If you're called and asked to serve in youth and children's ministry, this is why we need you. And this is one of the reasons why intergener- intergenerational relationships in our churches are so valuable as well. Children and students desperately need to have faith-filled relationships with people of all ages. But... Without question, the most important spiritual support for children, the research says, is their parents. And there's some good news there, because all of us who are parents have the ability to offer support, to to help our children engage in a life of faith more than one or two Sundays a month, which is, by the way, what the trend is right now. To to be there for them, to support them, to point them toward Christ. Most of us can choose somehow to do that, to support our children in growing in faith. And that is good news. And actually, if you're a biological or a spiritual parent, there's some even better news, which which actually also may feel like scary news to some of you. I, I, I know it does to me. The data shows that there is a factor that is much more significant to the faith of your children than what you do for them, how you support them. You know what that is? It's who you are. The research shows that how you express and live out your faith may have a greater impact on your son or daughter than anything else. And this actually shouldn't be too surprising to us. We pick up on what we see. We pick up and absorb what we're around. We emulate these things. One of my favorite quotes from the movie Batman Begins comes early in the movie when Rachel Dawes, Bruce Wayne's childhood friend and love interest, looks at Bruce and says, Bruce, it is not who you are underneath, but what you do that matters. And most of us know this is true. We're not measured by our children or anyone else by our secret or hidden intentions, but by who we show ourselves to be, by how we live, by what we do. And with our children, this happens and they emulate it in small and large ways. For instance, at some point in my life, and I still do, I learned to love cereal-flavored milk. I don't know if anybody else has this this love, but I learned to love, I don't know why Chateau hasn't included this in one of their special offerings, cereal-flavored milk. I think, and I think I must have picked this up at some point from my parents. I must have seen them pick up their bowl after a bowl of cereal and, and drink the milk out of the bowl and finish it off, and I somehow picked up that habit, and I still do it to this day. And I remember, though, I remember, though, when my children were younger, trying to hide this from them because I, I don't want them to pick up on things that are bad habits and that, that might create messes that I have to clean up. So I would, what I would do is, is I, would, I would eat my cereal and then I would walk into the kitchen where they couldn't see me to finish off the bowl. Until one day I forgot. 
No big deal, right? But I noticed only minutes later that my two-year-old son Luke then picked up his bowl and dumped it in his lap. He's much better at it now, though. But this holds true in other areas of life as well. What else are they picking up? What else are they picking up? Or not picking up? That's the point. A few more highlights from Chuck Clark and Karen Powell's book. The most effective way to teach your kids about faith is for you to have your own faith. Children pick up on the compartmentalization of faith and life. So homes in which faith or church and life, everything else, are kept separate are not generally homes where kids develop a lasting faith. Instead, the homes in which parents um, form rituals, engage in family service projects, have frank conversations about faith are the ones that seem, for the most part, to provide kids with the scaffolding necessary to form their own faith later in life. Next, you must prioritize your faith first if you want to pass on a faith to your children. Put on your mask first, right? You must offer grace and forgiveness to your children as God does to us. You've got to embody the gospel with them. One more. You must build a long-term relationship with your children if you want to have long-term influence with them. Most of us don't think of ourselves as evangelists, right? But what we're learning is, all of us who have children in our lives have a great gospel-shaped opportunity to share Christ. And in that, here's the kicker, Your own relationship with God and how you live that out matters more than anything else. Anything else. You can't farm that out. Right? You can't hire that done. So what is it that we need to be doing if we want to pass on a sticky faith to future generations? We need to be be the people we're praying for our children to become. We need to strive with every fiber of our being for Christ's likeness. And what, what might that mean for us? Well, basically, it means you try. It means you try. None of us are a finished product. All of us need God's grace to be or do anything that will matter for Christ in this world. And even if we are excelling in our walk with Christ, it doesn't mean that our children will actually choose lives of faith. There is no guarantee. And that's hard. So what do we do? We try. We try. We we try to know the story of God. We spend time daily studying Scripture. We, We participate in corporate worship. We invest in a small group Bible study. We try. We try our best to know the one behind the story. We spend time daily in prayer with Jesus. We work on our relationship with God. We try. 
We try because we know that we have to work at any relationship worth having, and we try because we know a relationship with Jesus is worth savoring. We try because we want our lives to count for something eternal, and we try because we know that when we give our lives to Jesus and His mission in this world, we are giving our lives to something eternally consequential. And we try because we know deep down within us that we want what Jesus wants. We want what's best for this world. And we want what's best for those we love in this world. We want what's best for our children. We try. So we try. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and hinder them not. And it's becoming clear that the most important thing that we can do to bring our children to Jesus is to live like children of Jesus. And if we'll do that, if we'll, if we'll choose to begin to truly live as God's people in this world, we just may create a sea change and with it, a new inheritance for our children. A sticky, life-giving, life-altering faith. How will you respond to the invitation of God through the psalmist today?